Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, political scientist and economist Christopher Blattman on why we fight. All wars end. Almost all wars end in settlements. Direct victories sometimes happen, seem pretty unlikely in this case. So the settlement can come sooner or later. Uh, and then, of course, you want your side to have the best end of that settlement. And so I think that's like that's the line like allies of Ukraine have to walk. The fact is, is that if you live in a society where women do not have a say, 50% of the population does not have a say, then your leadership is unchecked. It's unchecked by half the population, right? So half of those people's misery and suffering and costs of war will only be included to the extent that the leadership feels empathy towards them. Chris, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you uh, about issues of war and peace, conflict and violence and society. But first, I, I want to talk about what brought you to these momentous questions, because you have what I will call a very interesting background that, that got you to here, starting with wanting to be an architect and making your way through the Mounties and work in accounting and ultimately travel around the world. So walk us through kind of your history and what you how, how you got to issues of international development, economics, politics, and to the career you're in now. Oh, sure. Um, so I grew up in Canada, all over eastern Ontario, eventually in Ottawa. And I, I guess I had kind of an insulated middle-class life. I never left the country except unless you count Disney World. And uh, went to college and wasn't particularly aware about the world. <clears throat> and then I... Originally thought, I, yeah, I, I, I dallied with sort of drafting and architecture and then drifted weirdly into accounting. And that was initially my degree in, in university, which I was not very good at and completely miserable doing. Uh, but I figured that out before I graduated university and I switched into social sciences, really, mostly economics and political science mm -hmm. and got interested in the world. Yeah. And uh, and I actually remember there was a day I thought, well, how would I ever work on international issues? And I subscribed to the Economist, and at the back of a at the back of the magazine was a advertisement for a brand new program called the Masters in International Development hmm. at uh, at Harvard in the Kennedy School. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And and so I applied, and I ended up being in the second year there. So for all those institutions thinking about putting ads in The Economist, that really does work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if they they might have worked 20 years ago. I don't know. Or 24 years ago. I don't know if they work now. Um, the So so it, it, and that was really eye opening to me. I um, and it and it got me working. You know, uh, Jeff Sachs actually had me teach one of his classes or to be a teaching assistant with one of his classes and another professor sent me to work on one of his projects in India. And that got me interested in international development research. And so I did a PhD and then I, um, and that's kind of how I, that's brings us like the beginning of the book where I'm let, where I'm in Kenya thinking, I, I think the secret to, to, to world happiness is, is industrial development in Africa. Uh, and I'm looking at factories and never really given a thought to conflict. And you come at this, with a PhD in economics, if I'm right, and yet you find yourself 
with appointments in, in political science departments and publishing just as often, if not more often, in political science journals like the American Political Science Review, International Organization, as you do in others. How, how does that work? Because there are a whole lot of political scientists who are also studying war and peace issues and international security and the intersection of development and politics. And yet you're coming at it with somewhat of a different background. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean, economists at the time, so when I, 2004, when I first started studying conflict by accident, it was sufficiently unusual that my entire dissertation committee said this is a terrible idea. Uh, so like I said, I was, I was in Kenya and <clears throat> um, studying in this industry when someone steals my laptop, and this is how I start the book, and how I end up in an internet cafe talking to a humanitarian worker because the email's too slow. She works in northern Uganda. I follow her there, partly because I'm interested in her, wasn't so interested in northern Uganda. <laughs> uh, we've been married 15 years. We have two kids, and we now have careers together. But I that that experience just sort of pulled me towards studying this thing. Like I, mm -hmm. whatever I thought was important in the world before completely changed. Uh, but my, my, dis to, to, to the, to the credit of one of the senior members of my committee, when I graduated one, he said, look, you know, I was wrong. This was great. You pulled it off. But more importantly, he, he said, uh, if I'd known you were going for love, I would have told you to go. <laughs> and so this is, you always have a, a, a French person on the head of your dissertation committee, I suppose, <laughs> in case, in case you want to follow love. He was, he was supportive of that. Um, but, but it was still hard, you know, it was still unusual to study this topic. And, and so I think I had a natural job market in political science, which is usually a really difficult transition to make. Um, and, and so I think it was a little bit of luck that landed me at Yale in the political science department. And that just meant that for the next, for the rest of my career, I sort of would have one foot in both, in both disciplines. Did it help that so many political science departments in the United States now are, are very comfortable with methodology and formal theory and some of the things that you brought from economics? Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's such a big tent, the discipline. And I think a lot of the wars of the, game theory versus other theory and quantitative versus non-quantitative empirics. I think it's all over. Like, I think all of us are bilingual now mm -hmm. and many of us produce both kinds of work and draw on it. And at the time I would say, um, now there's a huge supply of just really talented empirical micro politics type scholars at the time that was still sort of supply was was constrained i would say which was why i had a had a good a good opportunity sort of my training was unique and mostly i think like at the time nobody very few people went to very very few people had ever tried to collect data in an active war mm. uh i i guess i'm not i don't know of any actually and so so the actual i think i think most of these days are just that's kind of my stick for my whole career is i just go places where nobody thinks you can collect data and then i collect data Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I think that was also just a good fit with that discipline. When have you felt most endangered? I'm, I'm very careful to know where it's, where to go and where not to go and, and have to work with people who have that expertise. And, um, and, and so I used to tell 
you know, my mom would ask this question and, uh, and I would say, well, mom, you know, I, and at the time I lived in New Haven and I lived in, uh, uh, I lived in Morningside Heights in New York. And then I lived on the South side of Chicago. And I would say, well, mom, you know, basically they're, my neighborhoods are just as dangerous as the places I'm going. And she'd say, what do you mean where your neighborhood's dangerous? <laughs> and, and I think that's the right way to think about a lot of places that are so-called dangerous. And you know, there's certain are, there certainly are places that are extremely dangerous. I, I don't do work there, but um, it's a little bit like living next to a bad neighborhood or in a somewhat bad neighborhood. You're, you're fine most of the time. And if you take sensible precautions, mm-hmm. you're fine most of the time. And then there is this very small chance of a mugging and a mugging gone awry. And just, so there's, I think there's a small chance in these places of something going wrong, but uh, I try to stay pretty smart and, and avoid that. Yeah. You've referred a couple of times to your book. And I do want to highlight that why we fight the roots of war and the paths to peace. I want to point out that you, you make a distinction in the book. And I think for our conversation, we want to draw a distinction between the roots of conflict and ways of avoiding conflict versus the roots of war and ways to avoid war, because you're talking about war as a protracted use of violence between groups, not not to say we can find ways to get rid of conflict. Everybody yeah. has conflict. You and I might have a conflict. I want to talk to you about these topics for the next 18 hours, but you may only have the next hour, hour and a half to do it. But that doesn't mean that we are going to arm groups and get into protracted violence. Explain why for your problem set, for how you're defining these issues, mm-hmm. that's an important distinction to talk about the protracted violence between groups. Right. So the idea that we're engaged in hostile competition with one another, especially between groups, is pretty self-evident. Uh, and and I draw a distinction with that and then using violence as, as our strategy, as, as the really important one, for a few reasons. Uh, one is because of a starting point of the book is that we, that's actually not usually our strategy and, and, and it's not our best strategy. Uh, and, and so I, I wanted to sort of write a book about the thing we have really strong incentives not to do, which is engage in this really costly and efficient violence. Um, and there's a tendency to think that that's the natural state of humankind. And there are these famous sort of, you know, going back to Hobbes, right, who talked about war, W-A-R-R-E, as like the natural state of humankind. What's interesting is I think when Hobbes talks about war, he wasn't talking about the use of violence. He was talking about this hostile, bitter competition, yeah. of sort of loathing and peace mostly, which, and which occasionally turns to violence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I wanted to, I wanted to focus on that occasionally because we forget that. Where you start with and where, where you end with in this analysis is something that, would be counterintuitive to quite a few people looking at issues of international conflict and violence, which is that even the most bitter of enemies prefer to loathe one another in peace. People don't write about the countless conflicts that are avoided. People tend to focus on, well, Russia invaded Ukraine. That just proves that we are all destined to fight all the time. And and a big purpose here that's both textual and subtextual is you want to unwrap that. You, you want to make people think harder about what it is, what kind of selection biases and other logical errors go into this belief that we are destined to have wars 
most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, share, share your intellectual development on that. What got you to the point after studying all of these different conflicts hands-on in, in the field and then looking at it through, through methodology and formal theory, how did you get to the point that you thought, you know what the world needs? They need a book explaining that people are actually biased towards not escalating to war. And I need yeah. to explain why it happens anyway. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I didn't write a book called why we don't fight, right? I called it, I wrote a book called why we fight. So obviously I, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to write one of these optimistic volumes that says mm -hmm. we're all destined for peace and happiness. And, and all you pessimistic people are wrong. I, I wasn't trying to do that, but I, I was trying to point out, I think this inheritance from all of this social science on conflict, because that's what the, the book is me just trying to boil down decades of work from all the people I learned from, and then a little bit of my own work, but mostly just the canon and, and these core insights for a general audience, because I couldn't believe that this wasn't out there. And, but even this realization that conflict is the except, violent conflict is the exception, not the rule, I think is, is subtle. And, and I didn't really realize it until I dove in and tried to synthesize everything together. And, and I think a lot of my colleagues, I think most of my colleagues say, yeah, 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 I think that's right. But they have to think about it. And they're like, you're right. That is what our science tells us. Right. And so we have to reflect on it. But, you know, there's good examples. So, so people, you know, this is a weird moment to be making that argument, right? Because of the war that's going on. But I, I like to point out a couple of things. One is, one is, first of all, that Russia is not at war with most of its neighbors, mm -hmm. right? It has, it, it, it has, has subjugated them peacefully, which is typically what happens. It's also subjugated its own people peacefully. Secondly, in the case of Ukraine, Putin spent 20 years trying everything short of war to achieve his aims, to co-opt the country. Assassinations, dark money, propaganda, mm -hmm. support for separatists, on and on and on. And so it was a last resort. Uh, and then two weeks into the invasion, India lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened. Uh, because it would have been a disaster. It would have been ruinous. Now, they don't want to fight one another. They prefer to loathe in peace. And so so they found a way around it. Now, if, if India and Pakistan had gone to war two months ago when that happened, uh, we'd, we all tell, we'd all tell a really persuasive story why, right? Yeah. But, and it would just seem self-evident that they're going into intense war, but, but, but it doesn't actually happen. So, and, and so I think when you actually look at the numbers, though, all those quiet moments of compromise are, are much more common. It seems like the bias is certainly there to say, and let's use the India Pakistan relationship. Yeah. Well, they went to war, you know, let's go back to the 1940s, right. And look at the yeah. extreme violence and yeah. let's look at the 1960s and let's look at what happened in the seventies and let's look at the cargo crisis and let's look at, well, they're always at war. Yeah. And actually, as soon as you break it down and think about it, you realize, no, they, they very rarely escalated to protracted violence. The vast majority of the time, they actually prefer peace, not a lack of conflict, but a lack of using violence to resolve that conflict, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Israel and Palestine is very similar in this hundred year competition yeah. and contest. I mean, there've been many violent moments 
so to say it's the and there's a lot of low scale and low intensity violence all of the time which is which is a little bit different right I, I think i'm i'm mostly when i'm thinking about war in this book i'm trying to focus us on the large scale prolonged violence right and there okay. have been periods of that mm-hmm. uh and but but they are it's not the majority of this this hundred years it's it's maybe a dozen of those years or slightly more and and so it's really important to understand those but we but i guess the point is let's actually and 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 basically if people remembered nothing else about the book after they're done it's to remember that war is extraordinarily costly so adversaries have so many incentives to avoid it and they usually do and so every explanation for why we fight is an answer to why they overlooked or ignored those costs mm-hmm. and it's pretty much that's it's at it it's uh, you know then the answer to how they do that is longer and complex but but the, at the end of the day that's it i do want to break down a lot of the reasons why we do fight anyway uh we human beings in groups end up going to war anyway but first let's let's hit that point that you look very strategically at the way groups behave that gets us to the point where compromise really is the rule. There are mm-hmm. imperfections, there are mistakes, but groups behave strategically by not going to war. Why mm-hmm. is that? So, I mean, it is because it's so costly and it's strategic. You know, I think it's it's so strategic. It's so much of an in our interests not to fight, but rather just a posture. It's even built into us. Um, I, I believe, you know, this is where my terrible background as an evolutionary biologist, my non-existent background shows itself. I believe they call it atavistic behavior, but this mm-hmm. is when mm-hmm. animals bare their teeth and arch their back or whatever they do. Um, but then don't, don't actually fight. There's just a lot of posturing and, 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 and that aversion to fighting, right? Fight if they must, but that aversion to fighting is, is built in. And, and so, but it's, I think it's because it's strategic. It's just because listen, they're, what Mao, Mao said that uh, that politics is war without bloodshed and war is politics with bloodshed. And von Clausewitz yeah. told us that war is just politics by other means. Mm. So they were they were sort of pointing out that violence is just one tactic that we get what we want in competition with the other. Uh, and and then what they didn't really mention is it's like the it's the it's the worst of those two tactics because it's it's just so destructive and 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 occasionally i think we do need to be reminded of that and i think everyone is being reminded of that by going by what's going on right now most yeah. of all the ukrainians and the russians and the assumptions you make and we use assumptions in multiple contexts here but the assumptions you make modeling that are mm-hmm. all things equal and we're going to talk for the rest of this talk about the way things aren't equal but all things equal that groups should understand that the costs of any protracted use of violence, maybe it gets them some gain versus an adversary, but it inherently reduces the size of the pie. You're causing damage that actually does hurt your own group in the process. And whether it's biologically at some level that a lot of animals don't get into fights and instead have this expressive, you know, these displays of don't fight me because I'm stronger than you. I have bigger horns. I have a bigger chest. I have longer claws. Um, Or whether it's human beings in nation states, whether it's declarations uh, in diplomatic channels or whether it's military exercises, that it's natural for groups 
to want to avoid war by dissuading adversaries from even starting it. Mm-hmm. That is the starting point here, right? That all things equal, that behavior is not to show that we want to fight. It's actually to prevent fights from escalating into wars. Yeah, and it's and it is a simplistic starting point. And and of course we depart from that because we do we do fight for, because we're not always rational and we're not uh you know there's this caricature of homo economicus that uh that that economists have criticized for privileging maybe too much. And and so the book is actually a way to do two things. One is to sort of learn from political science and economics about all the times that homo economicus does go to war because it's under the circumstances, it's actually the strategically optimal thing to do, which which a lot of people aren't familiar with. It's really important. But then I'm also trying to systematize and organize all the ways that we're not homo economicus and and actually provide a, a framework for sort of thinking through all these millions of ways that we're ideological and passionate and misperceiving and biased mm-hmm. and, and hasty. Uh, how do we... What, what, Partly just to say, like empirically, how, well, one, how do we conceptually think of these things so we can organize it all? Mm-hmm. But then, just as a matter of like looking at history and looking at events, like which of these actually seem to sort of come up again and again and again? So, which ones are just empirically important, and do we need to understand so that we could counteract? Yeah, let's jump right into that taxonomy because I think it's really interesting to to see how you create a framework for looking at what drives us to war, despite this this fundamental background of being better off without it. Uh, one you start with is unchecked interests. Explain right. that concept and give us some examples. Right. So if we go back to this idea that war is costly and every reason for war is the reason we ignore the costs, then this is the easy one, which is to say, suppose we have an unaccountable leader, like an autocrat, uh, like Putin, um, you don't have, you know, you can safely ignore most of the costs of war because you don't bear them, and your people cannot hold you accountable for them. And and so war is still costly to you. Right? Putin's bearing some risks and costs, to be sure, but but this this is um, this this is a he's maybe too quick to go to war. And what's more is if there's something that makes war in his private interest and not in the public interest, well. His his lack of accountability, the fact that he's an unchecked leader means he can pursue that. And and that strikes me as the least talked about, most important cause of war now and in history. Now, you make a distinction. A lot of people, when they hear unchecked interests of a leader leading to war, you immediately think, well, that's the difference between democracies and autocracies. Mm-hmm. But not all autocracies are the same, right? Right. So not all autocracies are the same and not all the democracies are the same. So so China, for example, is a much more power is much more institutionalized and checked and balanced internally is a good example. And 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 Putin is pretty personalized as a dictator, but he also he's accountable to a reasonably wide elite. Mm-hmm. And then we can think of extraordinarily personalized dictators. Like some presidents of the Congo, for example, that, 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 but so there's a lot of variation in autocracies. Um, There's also variation in democracies. I worked in Liberia for a long time where the president is elected every five years and those elections are very free and fair, but the president has sort of almost absolute power once, once there, there's, 
the legislature is very weak. They point all of the county heads and the village heads. And so there's no like devolution of power to states or cities. They're not really part of that many international treaties. So that you're, you're kind of, you're like elected as, you're not quite elected as a dictator for five years, but, but, but it's, it's, it's strikingly close. And so that's a place where, where that leader has a lot of unchecked influence. Yeah, it really gets, we have to go beyond these easy definitions, right? And, and look at the actual system to see. But your overall point is that a system where the interests of the leadership are, are more checked than not um, will tend to be less inclined towards escalating to war. And unchecked right, they're going to have to incorporate all of these, mm-hmm. the cost and the misery and the death that they could ignore. And then they're less free to pursue their private aims. So there's lots of private aims. Maybe it's, I think I can create a war economy of diamonds or, or, or other, you know, conflict minerals, or I can, I can rally the people around the flag and and win the next election and consolidate power. There's lots of stories about private interests for why our unchecked leaders are biased to war and in democracies and autocracies. And, and the more checked you are, the less able you are to pursue these things. Right. Does this also work? Uh, a lot of your examples that you bring up in your your research and writing don't have to do with nation states fighting. They have to do with mm-hmm. gang warfare or drug cartels and things like this. Do the same dynamics apply if you have unchecked interests of because everybody thinks that all drug cartels are ruled by dictators and all yeah. gangs are ruled by the strongest. But there's variance there, too. Right. Yeah, I mean, my day job is not so much analyzing the war between nations, but it's I work in, um, you know, alongside rebel groups or organized criminal groups in Chicago and Latin America on trying to find ways to reduce violence. Um, the They can be very unchecked, right? We can think of lots of criminal bosses who, at the very least, all the, they, when they consider the costs of war, they're, they're maybe considering the cost of war to their group and maybe the lost drug profits or whatever, their own personal risk. But they're, they're not thinking about all of the pain and suffering they inflict on the community, typically. So they're, they're all unchecked to a degree. But in some sense, the best run or maybe the most stable criminal systems of which in the book I talk about Medellin, Colombia, where I've been working for years, are ones where essentially criminal bosses in the city have invested a lot in keeping the peace because they get tired of losing money in the, in the fights and they get tired of losing the invisibility that is their Mm -hmm. shield Mm -hmm. because the government comes after them when there's a citywide gang war. And so they start to govern and organize all the street gangs underneath them. And we see that all over the world. We we used to see that in Chicago to an extent. Uh, We see it all over Latin America um, criminal governance over other criminals because conflicts in nobody's best interest. Right. Probably the pop cultural touch point for this that's that's most well known to people is the Godfather and especially yeah. the scene with the, the heads of the families coming together and that brief discussion of just a few minutes encapsulates a whole lot of this dynamic about unchecked interests and the fact that, yes, you you do have the ability to resolve a protracted armed conflict through this dynamic. 
Yeah, there's a, I think it's in Godfather 2 where one of the bosses says, I'm a businessman, I hate war. Uh, and, and indeed, there's a great book on Chicago called The Insane Chicago Way, which mm-hmm. sort of starts with um, one of the things that didn't work very well, it worked in part, but it was the Italian mob in Chicago trying to take a lot of the Latin gangs under their wing mm-hmm. and try to say, guys, you need to stop fighting and make more money. Because we're all going to be better off and help them try to build like a political confederation of Latino gangs, which was, I think, partly successful, not entirely. But it but it uh, but it but it has been partly successful and lasting. And and there are these incentives to build institutions, political institutions and norms and rules mm-hmm. uh, to prevent conflict among nations, among villages and even among criminal gangs. Have you found, uh, with The Godfather as one example, have you found that some of entertainment, movies, TV, novels, that that they get to some of these insights about conflict and violence perhaps better than mm-hmm. some of the academic research? Well, I mean, Mario Puzo and The Godfather, I mean, those do an amazing job considering, from what I understand, I, don't, I think this is true, I've heard this is true, uh, how little time any of these people spent with actual organized criminals. So I I think they got to a lot of these things quite uncannily. Um, The, you know, the thing I like about that, those movies, the thing I like about Breaking Bad is they capture how all of these people are heroes in their own minds to some degree, or at least moral actors Mm -hmm. in the sense that everybody has to get up in the morning and think they're a good person. Right. Uh, and they have to define a moral universe in which what they're doing makes right. A lot of it is they're just helping their friends and family. Sometimes they're also defending like a, say, a traditional social order. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I remember it's happened to me in Liberia and it's happened to me on the streets of Chicago where I've met a gang leader. And I'm I'm running some program that is basically trying to pull their best employees away from them. Uh, <laughs> and in Chicago, we're trying to pull their shooters away from them, which is partly a favor to them because they actually don't really like these sort of guys who are a little bit, little bit uncontrolled. But right. you do need your shooters to some degree. And uh, and but they are, they're always so solicitous and oh, I'm so happy you have this program. And I'm like, really? So explain to me why you're happy that I'm taking your best guys. And they're like, well, you know, I, and I've heard the same thing. You know, I'm just trying to, I only do this to do well by the guys on the block or the guys in my neighborhood. And and you can do better for them than I can. So all the power to you. Also, there's more where they came from. So, yeah. so you know, yeah. the, the supply is elastic. So, so, so they're, you know, so I, I haven't quite hit their bottom lines probably. Yeah. Let's move on from unchecked interests. Another, another way that wars happen anyway, is what you call intangible incentives, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great phrase, but it, it doesn't immediately give a picture to people of what it means. Yeah. Give, give some I examples mean, yeah. there. Labels were tough because I, I'm i trying to sort of say that, you know, what the try, thing I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say every reason for war, of which there's a zillion of them, <laughs> actually fits into sort of five logics. Right on. But, but, but that, that means you have to that means those logics are kind of encompassing. So, 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 and how you have an accurate label that's encompassing that also rolls off the tongue. I, I don't think I solved that problem. <laughs> um, but what what are intangibles? Intangibles are things that you're you'll you know that war is costly and you're willing to do it for some 
ethereal goal or ideological goal that you have, mm-hmm. some some reward up in the sky. And that could be God's glory or 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 the extermination of a heretic. It could be revenge. It could be uh, your own personal glory. Uh, it could be some other, you know, ethno-nationalist ambition you have. Mm-hmm. And so an example, like in, in this current conflict, this is one of the dominant narratives about why Putin invaded Ukraine. That partly it's personal glory, place in history, desire to sort of join this pantheon of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and so forth, to be Vladimir the Great, presumably. <laughs> um, also, a, maybe a sincere ambition to have Russia be great, to mm-hmm. reclaim the empire, and to eliminate what he sees as, what he may sincerely see as like a illegitimate ethnicity or ling- ethno-linguistic identity, which is to be Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you believe those are true or dominant here, they're all examples of saying, this is something you value and are willing to pursue in spite of the costs. Yeah. Would this category include kind of that generic sense of, I just don't want I don't want the other person to gain more than I do, right? Even if I recognize uh, that it leaves both of us in worse shape, I don't, I don't want to see them come out ahead. Yeah. Any, if, if, if we care about not our absolute position in terms yeah. of wealth and station, but we care about our relative position, yeah. then this, this would be some intangible thing. It's not that I want more of the pie because I like more of the pie. I just like to be on top. Yeah. And you know, that's a common belief in international relations i think it's and i think status seeking is is there i don't i don't know that i see that as the more the most important or persistent of things in history but it's certainly present um i i and you know in the book i talk about you know maybe one that i would find i find more persuasive is something that emerges not uh as a cause of war initially, but makes wars self-sustaining, mm-hmm. which is the development of anger and, and out, righteous outrage and vengeance. Yeah. Such that maybe one of the other four factors pushes you into conflict, but then the events and the, the manner in which things transpire make you so angry and interested in seeing merely the other side punished for the sake of being punished. Mm-hmm. That this helps sustain that war at length because because essentially there's a whole bunch of costs that you're willing to ignore because you're getting a payoff from from right. sticking it to your enemy, and and identifying that payoff is in each case is the key. I mean, you're taking me back here, Chris, to almost 30 years ago when when I was in my PhD program, political science, but it was at the time one of the big intellectual debates was the relative gains debate, as it was called in the literature. And, mm-hmm. and I was studying with Joe Greco at Duke, who was pointing out that fear of missing out in a relative gains can inhibit what would otherwise be great cooperation through international institutions. And Bob Cohane, not yet at Duke, but Bob Cohane was the one who was arguing, no, you know, the, the opportunity for absolute gains promotes international cooperation. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those where the fundamental insights of both were useful. And the longer the debate goes on and the more nuanced the cases get, you, you kind of lose that big picture of 
guess what? Whether it applies in every case or not, and how yeah. much it inhibits various forms of international cooperation, there's a fundamental truth there that, guess what? Some people do care about whether the other guy that I don't like is going to get more if we cooperate than I get, or mm -hmm. is going to lose less if we fight than, than I will. And that in and of itself can push people towards towards the kind of wars that we want to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I tried to not write a book so much about my theories, right. And your theories wrong mm -hmm. as it is a, a, a way to sort of say, here's how to just organize and evaluate all these theories that you get that you hear, because it can be kind of overwhelming and confusing. And so just understanding that, that status competition is, is just, you're pursuing an intangible and you're willing mm -hmm. to pay costs for that. I think is for me, it's clarifying partly because, you know, I'm an academic, I like to slot things where they go. But more importantly, I think that diagnosis helps you sort of think about treatments more clearly. Mm -hmm. Here's a, a big one. All things equal, if people know the costs or the likely costs of a war, mm -hmm. they won't do it. Mm -hmm. But guess what? There's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of factors that get in the way of perfect information. Talk through that as a cause of war. Yeah, so that's the third bucket, um, and there's a there's a couple things going on there. One is just the fact that we're in this noisy world, and so I you know think back to three months ago before this invasion, at just how uncertain some of these things were. How how strong is the Russian army? How unified is the West on sanctions? Will they really pull it off? Will Germany participate? Who knows? Uh, and, and just how plucky and brave and capable are Ukrainians in their political resolve and in their military response. And uh, I, I don't know anybody who guessed that Putin would get bad draws on all three of those. Uh, certainly Putin did not. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. the first point is just that amidst this uncertainty, there's, there's the possibility that you get it wrong and you launch an attack. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And, and we, we tend to sort of people, a lot of people call that a mistake, but I don't know if that's a, that is a mistake, but I, it's not a mistake in that it's, it's an ex post <laughs> right. mistake, but ex ante, yeah. it was probably your, yeah. your, your, your optimal choice. Mm -hmm. uh, now we can debate that in this case, but, but I, I think uncertainty is part of it. The, the thing that brings in the game theorists and the strategic logic is that amidst this uncertainty, you go war so costly in theory, both sides have a lot of have big incentives to basically figure out the truth. Mm -hmm. and that's why we have spy systems. Yeah. That's why we have talks. That's why we, you know, that's why we spend all this time trying to avoid war. But um, the tricky part is that you all, you're all, like in poker, you're always worried. You don't really see your opponent's hand and you're worried they're bluffing. And so if, if Ukraine's saying, no, 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 we're really resolved. We are not going to accept this. And the West is saying, no, 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 no. We are, we've been meeting. We're all unified. Yeah. Is that, are they bluffing? Do they even know their own real resolve? Mm -hmm. uh, can you trust it? And so sometimes the best strategy is to call. And so that's what uncertainty gives us. It sort of helps us realize that there's this strategic logic of invasion or war that can arise amidst, amidst like in an uncertain world. You've, you've hit a, a fundamental truth here in, in a way that I'm not sure you're intending to, but from from my background working in intelligence, mm -hmm. there is such a strong ethos. I think the public tends to focus on things like 
covert action gone awry or, you know, the deep, dark things that sometimes intelligence services are asked to do. But the fundamental ethos of intelligence is to reduce uncertainty for decision makers. Yeah. And in a well-functioning system, which I would argue the, the United States is more often than not, in a well-functioning system, the, the idea is that if policymakers can make decisions with less uncertainty, if you can narrow the range, that you are more often than not going to get better policy. It doesn't guarantee good policy and yeah. it can't prevent bad policy, but having an understanding of what is actually happening in the world prevents some misunderstandings, reduces the uncertainty, which can lead to suboptimal outcomes. Other intelligence services in history haven't always operated that way. Sometimes they've yeah. been more tools of, of state power primarily and perhaps didn't even have an objective, an analytic function. Right. I mean, this. there's a really interesting, you know, we're going to have a whole other bucket later on for all these times when we don't. We, we misperceive when we don't get this mm -hmm. get this uncertainty right, but there's an interesting like thing going on here. Most of the cases where we fail, not all, but many, if not most, are this are this this I think this interplay between an uncertain world and an unchecked leader, especially mm -hmm. an autocrat. Mm -hmm. the The logic of autocracy is that you, first of all, you have to spend most of your time and maybe most of your intelligence service on enemy number one, which is all of the people who would like to overthrow you. That's right. The threats to your own rule. Right. And so you're, you're, you, you will also have adversaries outside the country, but they're, they're enemies number two, three, or four often. And, and I think the United States sometimes has forgotten that when it's engaged with autocracies. They usually think they're enemy number one, and they fail to imagine that they're often enemy number four. And you know, there's there's so much great work on this now about that strategic logic of being an autocrat and how it can lead you to be isolated and insulated from good information. And that the fundamental problem of running a stable autocracy is, is actually finding ways to get good information. And, and so this, I think, helps explain why so many dictators have elections and allow a certain amount of free social media and things, because they need to sort of have that they're not trying to like relieve pressure on themselves, although that might be that too. They're trying to sort of get bottom up information so they can maintain control. Mm -hmm. This really seems to apply to a case study that I, I tend to think is often misunderstood, um, or at least the wrong focus is put on it. And that is the whole situation of US and Iraq relations from the time of the first war, the liberation of Kuwait through uh, the 2000s and carrying forward with its implications to today. I mean, the simple explanations are American policymakers were stupid, evil or both that Saddam Hussein was stupid, evil or both. Yeah. But in fact, there there is an issue here about uncertainty, which is Saddam was quite deliberately wanting to keep some uncertainty about whether he had weapons of mass destruction programs, which people can say, well, that doesn't make sense. You were bringing right. down the weight of United States uh, military power on yourself because you were turning mm -hmm. inspectors away. Why would you do that if you didn't have WMD? And yet Saddam Hussein wanted that uncertainty because he had big bad neighbor Iran next door. He had mm -hmm. his own public to worry about. He had Israel to worry about. And yeah. It makes some sense when you think about it that that war, at least in large part, developed because of the uncertainty 
that Saddam himself gave, even his own generals, about mm-hmm. whether there were active WMD arsenals to be used in a conflict. So I agree. I mean, there's. I think you need a bit more to get fully to war, and we'll get to that bucket. I guess that I guess, but I I agree. I, I people. One thing I'll say is. Some people get mad when we talk about when I talk about the way in which there's a strategic logic to the invasion, um, as if that sort of is an excuse for it. Whereas, you know, I think just understanding strategic incentives is not trying to make excuses or not. It's it's. Uh, I think it's just trying to actually understand motives. There, there was uncertainty on both sides. So you mentioned so Saddam. You know, if Saddam shows his cards to the United States. He shows his cards to Israel, to the Shiites, to the Kurds, and to the Iranians. Right, and so that's right. a disincentive for him to show his cards. Yeah, He eventually showed his cards at the very last minute, most of them, right? Yeah. But there was then always uncertainty, residual uncertainty about what could he do in future. So, yeah. so that was fundamentally destabilizing. And, and there, you know, the U.S., there was a lot of uncertainty in 2001 and even by 2002, 2003 about U.S. resolve. Mm-hmm. So there are, there, there are great accounts of by journalists and historians and and whatnot of both the Taliban and Saddam Hussein, just thinking the United States is going might might attack, but they're not going to put boots on the ground. It's not mm-hmm. going to be a full force invasion. Yeah, the United States doesn't have that kind of resolve. They will not sacrifice American lives uh, in such a faraway place that Americans don't really care about, because that was a reputation that the United States had through much of the '90s and earned. And. Uh, and so you can partly see the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan as American exercises in reputation building mm-hmm. uh, to deter the future Saddams and the future Al Qaeda's and um, and and why do you need reputation? Well, you don't need reputation in a world of certainty, right? If my strength and resolve is written on my forehead. <laughs> it's not a big, I don't need a reputation. It's written on my forehead. It's only in an uncertain world where you have to construct reputation and you have to credibly signal your resolve, uh, maybe by prosecuting wars. And so I think we have to, you know, and that can be, you can think of that as justified or you can think of that as a cold-hearted, cruel, selfish cal- calculus on the part of both Saddam and, mm-hmm. and the Americans. And that's both, 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 I think both views are correct. Uh, and, um, and that's 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 in some sense the, the this additional logic of uncertainty. It's not just the noise, right. it's not just the possibility that there's bluffing, but it's the fact that that sometimes war serves a purpose, which is to construct a reputation that then gives you advantage in all of your future, you know, hopefully peaceful competition with all your future adversaries. Another bucket that certainly overlaps with this one is when an arrangement to keep the peace or prevent yeah. war fails because one side or both can't be counted on to honor it in the future. You call this a commitment problem. Uh, give right. us an example of the of, of how this plays out. Right. I mean, and commitment problem is like uh, one of these terms in political science that I adopt because it's so pervasive, but it's really a horrible word because or term because it really doesn't mean anything. To, it makes you think about personal commitments, which gets yeah, exactly. Fast. It makes you think about your your boyfriend or girlfriend who yeah. doesn't want to get married. Um, <laughs> what does it mean? You know, it's it's uh, it's the idea that um, there's lots of kinds of commitment problems, but the main one of the main ones says uh, you're going to be much more powerful in the future, yeah. and I could lock in my advantage now by attacking you, making sure that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. 
stop that future from occurring. Mm. And you could promise not to take advantage of your power in future. You could credibly commit in some ways. You could, that's what we, we have constitutions, we have international agreements, we have lots of ways, but often that's not possible. And when we do, when that happens, there's a commitment problem. So I invade because you can't promise not to abuse your strength in future. Again, so locking in your advantage. And that, I think you need that alongside the uncertainty in the Saddam Hussein example. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Because eventually Saddam does show his cards. Yeah. So to say that the U.S. In, invaded because of uncertainty is stretching credibility. Uh, uncertainty plus the Bush administration's private interests plus the mistakes. Maybe, maybe now we're there. But uh, what a lot, what what a lot of people have pointed out, um, who've studied this closely as well. The commitment problem here was the. Saddam Hussein might be able to develop a nuclear bomb. He doesn't have one now, mm -hmm. probably, <laughs> even almost certainly, suppose. But he could restart that program in mm -hmm. yeah, six months, a few years. What's the probability of that? I don't know. Maybe you think the probability is super small. But if that happens, then the entire balance of power in the Middle East is just completely changed. Right. Of Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, everything, oil. And... So you have to, how can he commit not to do that? The incentives are so powerful. Mm -hmm. Amidst the uncertainty, especially, how can he commit not to do that? And so the rationale, the strategic rationale for invasion is to say, it's in our self-interest to exterminate that threat of this rise. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and so that, that's a very popular, nuanced, subtle, important, in popular sorry, through political science account of the war. Mm -hmm. I think here about, as with many of these, you can go back even to ancient history and think about Rome, you know, towards Carthage, right? To think about ways of overcoming these commitment problems through war. Um, yep. You get to war because of the lack of a credible commitment, but you also, you know, knock out the opportunity for future conflict. So yep. it's it's one of those where it depends on your, your time frame for yeah. how you choose to look at it. Yeah, it's possible to also see a little bit, maybe a tiny commitment problem in the Russia-Ukraine instance as well, hmm. which is to say that hmm. um, that partly due to Russian actions and all this sort of efforts to unsuccessful efforts to co-op the country, yeah. the country was moving more and more towards a, a truly democratic system, mm -hmm. um, which is a dangerous example to have on his border, given how much Russians identify. Right. If you think that Putin felt this democracy was a threat to his hold on power in Russia, mm -hmm. which is a big if, but I think it's credible. Um, if you think that, then Ukraine is drifting away. Mm -hmm. And they're also not getting any militarily weaker relative mm -hmm. to, to you. You know, they're acquiring Turkish drones, which actually mm -hmm. happened earlier this year. Uh, Develop, they developed these Neptune missiles, which we all learned so much about recently when they sank a warship, uh, probably. Uh, maybe would eventually get long-range missiles themselves from somebody else from the West. Who knows? Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of see R R Russia is sort of thinking of itself as that we're at peak leverage because our economy has been stagnating. Growth seems to be over. Uh, now or never. Lock in advantage. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's sufficient to explain what happened. Um I think the intangibles, incentives, and what are all very important, but but I think that that narrowed. There was sort of a closing window that I think might help us explain the timing. Yeah, and and I think using the Russia 
Ukraine example is useful for our, you know, fifth general way that countries go to war, which is misperceptions, right? Because we can easily point to several of those primarily on the Russian side, uh, misperceptions, at least according to how we see reality, things that just seem like they are decidedly out of whack from the decision-making perspective of, of the Russians. Yeah. Um, Talk through some of the misperceptions and how here you bring in some social psychology and some in-group, out-group dynamics to help explain how wars can happen. Yeah. And before we even get to the social psychology, we can bring in some of the institutional misperceptions that we Mm -hmm. hinted at earlier when we said that the logic of autocracy leads you to be insulated from information. Um, that, that story doesn't belong in any of these previous four buckets. That's the story of misperceptions. That's the story of a persistently erroneous belief, right? It's a, it's a story of, I went to war despite the costs Mm. because I either overjudged the benefits or I underestimated the costs, Mm -hmm. or I just simply misjudged how my enemy is going to react to my move. And I, I did so and continue to do so despite evidence to the contrary. Mm. And that's a persistent misperception. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very endemic. They happen for these institutional reasons. That's, by the way, also a strong argument for the invasion of Iraq is sort of intelligence failures. Bob Jervis is the famous proponent of this. Yeah. The, the, the systematic intelligence failures led to a misjudgment. So on top of all these other strategic reasons I've talked about, there are all these reasons it was a mistake. Uh, and then it's up to every one of us to judge for ourselves which one is more influential. I think mm-hmm. they're all pretty influential. Um, but, but then there's also the psychological, so, so there's the psychological element. They're the, not the mistakes we make as individuals. A lot of behavioral science focuses on why we buy gym memberships we don't use and stuff like that. (laughs) I I don't dwell a lot on the, a lot of the common sort of thinking fast and slow Danny Kahneman style biases, not because they're not important, but mostly because a lot of those biases are, are less, important in these strategic interactions over long periods of time with really high stakes decisions. I try to focus on the way a lot of these basic biases manifest themselves in the ways that bureaucratic organizations make mistakes systematically. Mm -hmm. Um, A big one's overconfidence. The fact that leaders in a lot of organizations tend to underestimate the costs, overestimate their chances of victory. Mutual fund managers are a great example of people who just repeatedly are convinced they can beat the market and they don't. And so if you can sort of get mutual managers who believe this for high stakes decisions for decades, maybe it's not so surprising that we also get politicians. And in fact, there's, there's seems to be a bias towards overconfident leaders, uh, even in democratic systems is people tend to elect the candidates who, who, show the most confidence and speak most confidently and describe Mm -hmm. how right they've always been. Yeah. I want a leader who's always been right. Well, perhaps some of that definition of I've always been right relies on some overconfidence. And thus there's an inherent misperception, even in a system that has the checks and balances and other things we've talked about. Yeah. I don't, it's totally plausible. I think this is where I sort of reach the limits of what social science has told us, mm-hmm. which is I actually, I think because we haven't focused enough on some of these misperceptions in a yeah. data-driven way that 
I don't, I don't actually think we have a good sense of like what proportion of political leaders are overconfident and yeah. are they systematically, maybe you'll, maybe you only need like 3% of the political leaders to be overconfident. Now you've explained <laughs> a lot of the war. It can't be that all of our political leaders are overconfident. Otherwise my basic premise would not be true, which is the idea that we, you know, where's the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's a lot of self-correcting, a lot of self-correcting forces going on, but except when it doesn't. Right. And that's, yeah. That's maybe where we've reached, uh, I think, the limits of what this assembly of, you know, statesmen and stateswomen and academics have, like, you know, taught us, which we don't really know why they're overconfident and how often. Right. And there's only so much you can do to prevent overconfidence and the misperceptions coming from them. But there are things you can do. Mm-hmm. And I think here about the the difference in, in the realm that I come from, the intelligence realm, between the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the U.S. mission to capture but ultimately kill Osama bin Laden. In the former, you know, you did not have a, a formal team that was set up explicitly mm-hmm. to, to debunk evidence and to try to point out all the ways that Iraq was not doing the things that it seemed obvious they were doing. Yeah. One of the lessons from that experience that was learned is with a much smaller group of analysts working on it, we absolutely had to do that for the raid in Abbottabad. And a team was set up to look at the evidence that bin Laden was the person there mm-hmm. and explicitly try to knock it down and say, how could all of that evidence be wrong? Who else would it be more likely to be? And that fed into the policymakers decision about Nope, we are we are just confident enough that it is bin Laden. We're going to go forward with a very risky activity. Mm-hmm. One of those cases where misperceptions, you can't eliminate them, but yeah. you can have some processes to help overcome them. Absolutely. And I think there is an organizational literature uh, of how to avoid this. I think a lot of it comes from business as well. Yeah. A lot of management yeah. techniques. So, so you know, there's this this idea that a lot of, CEOs will embrace is not not letting their subordinates know what they think mm-hmm. initially starting the meeting and have everybody go around and say what they think before saying what you think is yeah. is an effort probably effective I mean no one's run the randomized control trial probably but I believe that yeah. probably helps uh, and and so there there are sort of methods of leadership mechanisms of institution design that reduce this mm-hmm. well. I feel like I've been whiplashed here, Chris, because I started out talking to you thinking, this is great. Human beings aren't inherently always going to war. And we've got ways of preventing our natural conflict from going into protracted, violent warfare. But then we've just been through all these reasons and they seem pretty compelling, right? We all have misperceptions. We all have problems, you know, commitment problems in the sense we talked about uncertainty and leadership sometimes isn't checked. So now I'm feeling rather pessimistic that, in fact, conflict is inherent and we're never going to get rid of it. But thankfully, you also have some ideas about ways that stable and peaceful societies can manage to you know, keep competition away from incessant warfare. Um, let's walk through some of those. What are, what are some ways that we can feel a little more optimistic, things we can actually do to make yeah. societies more resistant to warfare. So 
I mean, well, the starting point is we don't really have to. On some level, we don't have to do anything. Now, of course, that's not true. But yeah. but the those core incentives, like wars, just so ruinous that like even if we do nothing, the all of our mistakes and the uncertainty and mm-hmm. swings in power that lead to commitment problems and the intangibles and ideologies we have are usually not even enough to make us you know use violence against our enemies for a very long time. Right. Uh, but. Um, no one likes to live on the edge of a bitter precipice where, but for, you know, some, you know, idiosyncratic set of events, you, you could find yourselves at war, right? That kind of is a really miserable place to dwell. So you'd like to have lots of buffer and padding. And, and, and so whether, yeah, whether it's these gangs in Medellin or it's the nations or villages, we, we're pretty good at constructing stuff. Um, one of the things I talk about is what I call interdependence, which is the way we we actually start to care about the costs to the other group, which will make us even more hesitant to go to war. I also talk about checks and balances, the way we sort of get rid of unchecked power, mm-hmm. which is not only one of the five, but actually aggravates all of them. Mm-hmm. I talk about all the ways human societies have tried to create sort of rules and ways to enforce those rules. And then when conflict does break out, I talk about the the tools we've developed, which are, you know, never magic solutions, but, but, but actually can, can sort of bring it to a quicker end. Yeah. And that's, that's like part two. Yep. So let's, let's break down one of those in particular. I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. by the rules and enforcement side, because honestly, that sounds like the easiest mm-hmm. bandaid to apply is, Oh, guess what? We have thousands of years of human history. All we have to do is study the cases of war and non-war, and we can come up with the rules and enforcement mechanisms between tribes, between between city-states, between nations. We find the ones that have prevented war the most, and we apply them universally. Guess what? We're all better off. Yeah. But but it doesn't actually work that easily. Uh, Why is that? Is that due to the fact that you can't really do any true experiments in that regard the data is too fuzzy or is it due to the rest of these other dynamics intersecting it and making it too complicated in terms of so many independent variables well i mean i think i think there's an overwhelming amount of evidence just historical qualitative i mean this idea of make us a king right which is this old idea that well we'll just empower this warlord above us to keep the peace and we'll give in and, and, and that person will have a more or less a monopoly in violence um and now that goes awry a lot because that person's often unchecked and so it can be repressive right but it can also that person might go wage war against others so it's not perfect but the sense in which it's pacifying throughout history is the idea that whether it's the king or the imperial overlord you know the first thing imperial powers would come in they would do some very nasty things they would also put an end to wars, right? And so I, and nowhere in the book do I say that peace is just, that peace isn't repressive, that peace yeah. is free. Peace is just the absence of violence. And so, mm-hmm. you know, ruthless overlords are actually pretty good at ending internal violence. Um, and then over time, we've, you know, living under ruthless overlord has not been great. And we've developed, many societies have developed states that are less ruthless, more accountable. They're more checked and balanced. And so they're less repressive. So we live in a, we live in a society where we get, we get our cake and then we eat it too. We get peace, but we also get a degree of justice and equality. 
And and that hasn't happened everywhere, but but that's that's a great example of rules of enforcement. And when I talked about what was going on at a city level with the criminal governance, that was a state-like entity. They call it La Oficina, the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at, at the global level, we don't really have that overlord, but we try to construct these state-like entities. Uh, we have treaties. We have collective agreements that we try to collectively enforce. We have like the UN Security Council. So they're kind of imperfect, right, which is an understatement. But they serve some of that function of providing some predictable rules and penalties. Generally, when people look at the League of Nations or you know the UN, they look at them as failures in this regard because, you know, guess what? The League of Nations was set up and you know, coterminous for a time with the Kellogg-Briand Pact, suddenly there's going to be no more war and we have that higher authority. And it was an abysmal failure in some very important uh, regions. And then you look at the UN and the Security Council being completely ineffective in the case where Russia is a permanent member right now. Mm -hmm. And even the General Assembly uh, not being able to do the things that would be necessary to have the kinds of rules and enforcement you're talking about. But do we suffer again here from selection bias of, of mm-hmm. looking at the dogs that did bark and yeah. not looking at the times that these institutions maybe deterred regimes from doing things in the first place? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I would say the, the UN Security Council and the General Assembly isn't totally ineffective. I'd say it's sometimes, and if we could argue if it's mostly or occasionally, but uh, the fact is, is the fact that we do have some degree of predictable rules and norms and enforcement mechanisms, partial as they are, hard to apply as they are against a great power. We do have some, and that's that's probably deterred a lot of nasty stuff from happening, even by other great powers. So uh, it's definitely restraining, you know, even if it's just speed bumps on right. the road to war for some of these, you know, unchecked leaders. Uh, plus, you know, in some sense, to the extent they work, they, they're trying to roll back a lot of these five reasons. So any sort of punishments Mm. on unchecked leaders and for, or intangibles is like sanctions and sanctions regimes or international criminal courts are designed to sort of make unchecked leaders pay attention to these costs. And, and, uh, and, and the UN and all of its institutions and all of the mediators and things that come out of it are designed to, you know, reduce uncertainty. And so, and, and reduce misperceptions. And and so to the extent they're successful, some of the time they're successful because they do that well. And to the extent that we want them to be more successful, then we need to help them solve the five, the five reasons for war. You would think that of, of all of the cases in the last few decades of the International Criminal Court and related institutions, um, you would think of all of those cases that, that would be considered most relevant and available to the Russian leadership right now, it probably would be the cases having to do with the conflict in the Balkans and mm-hmm. the Serbian, Bosnian, Serbian officials that have gone before those tribunals. And yet it's hard to find any observers of uh, Putin or those around him who who would assess that he feels constrained by the possibility of future uh, war crimes prosecutions. So maybe there's a speed bump there, but yeah, if it's a speed bump of one millimeter on on a road, that it's it's hard to assess the true impact of that because again, we we don't have we have a collection problem. We can't get inside yeah. Putin's head to see how much of a factor that is for him. 
Yeah, we don't know all the nasty stuff he's decided not to do mm-hmm. because of this. I mean, I mean, I think, I think, I think the the risk of some sort of international prosecution mm-hmm. does actually occupy the minds of a lot of generals in every conflict, even a yeah. a great power. So mm-hmm. it surely shapes how they conduct they they conduct the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I, I've never talked to Russian generals about this. I've talked to a lot of warlords and government officials about this and who are another like civil wars and they do worry about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the idea that Russia, you know, Russia has not signed onto the international criminal court. Um, and the U S has, which was also not really signed on has Mm -hmm. spent the last 20 years trying to establish very clearly that if you don't sign on, then you're not, you're not, you can't be held accountable. And so, so yeah, the, the speed bump is, is, is low for, for Putin because of that effort. And so I, uh, I think, I don't think we're actually close as a country to signing on. Mm-hmm. I think we're closer than we ever have been because suddenly Americans are like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually <laughs> would, wouldn't be nice if, if, if everyone was, if, if someone like Putin was actually restrained by this. And since he's more likely to pull these, shenanigans and we are maybe it's act does make sense for us to like to promote this so i i, I still don't think that'll happen but but at least yeah. i think it's being talked about so there are definitely some what i would call some sticks to be used as a pathway to peace like the threat yeah. of sanctions the threat of international tribunals um but i but i wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about the carrots and mm-hmm. this is perhaps the most difficult part because when you're talking about a protracted conflict or the the potential for one mm-hmm. and then you're talking about giving people incentives giving them the carrot instead of the stick mm-hmm. you're often talking about some very bad people who have made some very bad choices who have done some very bad things and are probably inclined to do some very bad things and saying here, let's um, let's partner with you. Let's bring you into the system and give you a stake in the stability in the future. Mm-hmm. That is very unpalatable to a whole lot of people, both in the general public and among political actors themselves. And it raises some really tough ethical dilemmas. Uh, yeah. Talk through the difficulty of you've seen it at a practical level. You, you've been with people who are struggling with this in in the real in the moment as you're talking with them about you know do we continue this insurgency or not do we yeah. escalate this gang war or not and i'd like to get your perspective on that from from that hands-on level to the strategic level of when incentives work best and when the ethical dilemma pushes you to the other direction yeah so i've seen it work well on a lower level where i think it's less repugnant to people uh, I, you know, I was part of a UN peacekeeping operation or advising them, evaluating how it's working when they were trying to basically buy a bunch of ex-rebels off of rubber plantations in Liberia in the, in the years right after the war, um, which is a pretty common strategy for demobilization that everyone seems to be behind. Uh, there are you know, some of the, the politicians we work with in and bureaucrats that we work with in Colombia you know, it's, it's not a, they're not too public about it, but the, the criminal leaders who agree to keep the peace 
uh, might get sentence reductions. Now, right, they use the stick in order to give themselves some carrots to offer, right? So, so that's, and, and I think a lot of people are comfortable with that in the same sense that we're comfortable with plea deals to an extent, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, or at least we're partly comfortable, but they struggle with it, and which is partly why it often has to be secret. The, but then it comes to someone like, say, Putin, who, who, uh, you know, what is, what does a carrot look like here? Well, a Mm. carrot means supposing he is, supposing he reaches a stalemate and stops fighting, uh, or pauses fighting in, in Ukraine still occupies a great deal of territory Mm -hmm. because Russia is very militarily powerful. And and so now suppose this is starting to look like the next Kashmir, for example, mm-hmm. then do you give him a path to get out of sanctions and to not prosecute in return for him maintaining that stalemate or maybe for like occupying less of that territory or being less repressive on that territory? Uh, or do you, uh, do you just say, listen, you're a criminal we're going to do everything we can to change the regime, to to prosecute for you for war crimes, to mm-hmm. to maintain the sanctions regime, such that peace becomes not that attractive, and and suddenly war doesn't look so costly anymore, and and so then we enter some very long fight. Now maybe maybe none of these Ukrainian or Western decisions on on that will actually change his calculus if he you know if if he's he's a lunatic or if he's mm-hmm. driven by nationalist passions. But if you think he's somewhat strategic, yeah, which I usually think is a good bet, uh, then I think, yeah, that's, that's some, that's some, un- those are some unfortunate things that we'll have to potentially, uh, live with, you know, frankly, that I, the way I look at it is that this is up to Ukrainians and then we should support them. You know, if they want to settle mm-hmm. officially or unofficially, who are we to say otherwise? And, and, whether Ukrainians or other decision makers having the fundamental realization that there, there may not be good choices here. That is you're, you're, you're making a choice among bad options and looking for an option that will actually end well for everyone that may not be in the cards and you may have to use incentives and other paths to peace that are simply less toxic than others. Yeah. Yeah. No, all wars end. Uh, almost all wars end in settlements. Mm-hmm. Uh, direct victories sometimes happen, seem pretty unlikely in this case. Yeah. So the settlement can come sooner or later. Uh, and then, of course, you want your side to have the best end of that settlement. And so I think that's like that's the line like allies of the of Ukraine have to walk, which is to say, how do we put you in the best position vis-a-vis mm-hmm. your adversary, our adversary, uh, but also enable the violence to end, right? Because yeah. it's... It's crushing. Yeah. It's also unsustainable. I mean, I don't know how it continues. I think I, I read there's a Ukrainian economist at Berkeley who estimated that they need 50% of their national income every month or their monthly national income to prosecute the war. Basically, Oof. like every half of every dollar earned in that country. And then there's with, with a shrinking number of dollars being earned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also extraordinarily, extraordinarily expensive for Russia as well. But but it's especially... So, so I, I think... The, the Zelensky has to be looking for a way out because I'm, I'm just not sure there's enough, uh, there's enough resources in Ukraine or in, 
or in the West's, you know, strategic interest or generosity to actually let him prosecute it for that long. Right. Well, there's, there's one other area, Chris, I want, want to talk about is, you know, talking about what the, the social science research and logic and argumentation tell us are the likeliest paths to, to war and peace. You also want to look at the things that are probably the poor options. That is the paths that are often discussed, but may not be the solutions that they're chalked up to be. And I think here about a few myths that you debunk and evidence that you bring to the table to do so. Um, one is we need to put women in charge. Um, mm -hmm. If women are in charge, we will not have war. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you even tackle that question and where do you come down on that? So, uh, I mean, I, I just, a lot of people have studied this, so I kind of just try to summarize the evidence mm -hmm. and, um, and link it to the, just the ideas we've just said. And, and the, I think the evidence comes down on saying actually like having a more inclusive society, whether it's women or ethnically or racially is more pacifying, but maybe not for the reasons people think, mm -hmm. um, women tend to be a little bit less aggressive i mean in the instant in terms of hot reactive violence yeah yeah huge gender difference huge mm -hmm. that is that is not right but we're not talking about interpersonal violence we're talking about large groups prosecuting years and months of violence right where where those emotions and maybe those male instincts and hormones are play a much smaller role not zero but just to say it's not much smaller and and then when you when 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 people look at the data and they see more women in power, it's not necessarily uh, they're not more or less likely to go to war. Um, partly because I think all of these other factors we've talked about tend to dominate over these these more gender based ones. So but what yeah, I, so if I'm right, the yeah. you know the studies that have been done with uh, you know more than a century of data show that countries led by women were about as likely to start fights as yeah. countries led by men, but. There's so many factors there. There's group yeah. decision-making dynamics. There's whether there's a selection bias in the women who seek leadership in those countries. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of things wrapped there's up There's a lot here. going on. And so we don't really know. And, yeah. and, and surely, and, and of course, just because you have a female president or prime minister doesn't mean that women are equally represented at all levels of government, right? Yeah. So it, yeah. pops, you know, it's, it's surely likely that I, I find it totally plausible that if in that case, maybe our governments are a little less aggressive, but to me, like the override, the thing that just overrides all that, that just says small potatoes. The fact is, is that if you live in a society where women do not have a say, 50% of the population does not have a say, then your leadership is unchecked. It's unchecked by half the population, mm -hmm. right? So half mm -hmm. of those people's misery and suffering and costs of war will only be included to the extent that the leadership feels empathy towards them. But doesn't yeah. actually give them a say. And so women's representation or minority group representation or just representation in general is going to be pacifying because it's going to compel leaders to internalize more costs. And and so whatever biological differences that we tend to focus on, that's just small potatoes compared to this like fundamental overarching thing is that like if you rob people of voice, then you don't have to listen to them and you can take them and you can make, you make terrible things can happen to them and you don't care. And and that is the more important thing to focus on. Mm -hmm. What about uh, hardened ethnic identities and religious identities? If we could just soften those, if we could yeah. wipe out ethnic identity and religious identity as a, as a cause of conflict that we would eliminate or dramatically reduce war. 
What do you think? Well, I mean, in the sense like I have a, I talk all through the book about anything that binds us together in trade and mm-hmm. in, in intermarries us, creates mutual understanding, yep. creates empathy. All of these things are going to make us care about our adversary, mm-hmm. even a little and more than is even more costly than it was before. Because before I was only impeded by the costs to me, not, I didn't ever care that war was costly to you, mm-hmm. but um, and so that's that interdependence, which is like one of these pacifying factors is really, really important. Mm-hmm. But the, it sort of goes back to what I said earlier, which is you don't need all that actually. So mm-hmm. that's nice to have. In fact, it's really nice to have, uh, but two polarized enemies who still have incentives not to fight mm-hmm. was our starting point. Right. So you, that's why it's sort of, I like to say enemies prefer to loathe in peace. It's totally fine. Loathing in peace is still our incentive. And we'd love to sort of then not just, we'd like to be just sort of bitter in peace. And then it would be even nicer if we were just sort of, you know, uh, uh, gritting our teeth in peace. And then, then it's like, Oh, we're kind of happy with peace because we like the other person. And now we're getting to a more stable society, mm-hmm. but you don't need that actually. And so that's why I think none of, a lot of the data on hardened ethnic identities doesn't, doesn't, doesn't actually associate with with the probability of conflict very much. Yeah, it also, you know, it seems to forget that most ethnic groups don't fight, right? That you, yeah. you, you have very strong uh, religious cleavages and ethnic cleavages in probably thousands of localized areas around the world. And the vast majority of them aren't at war. Yeah. Right? And that goes back to like one of your first questions, which is like, where does this idea come from? And I, I remember one of the data points that never doesn't get raised very often, but was really influential to me early on was a study done many years ago by Jim Fearon and David Layton, who looked at, they actually said, well, let's look at all the ethnic groups close enough to one another mm-hmm. to, to basically be in, in bitter competition in yeah. Africa and Eastern Europe. And then let's count every year, how many of them actually engage in violence. Yeah. And the answer is something like one in a thousand. Right now, over time, that adds up to a lot of ethnic conflict, right? And we have to care about that. Like, it's not like I'm, I'm not trying to say it's not important. We're just, yeah. but it helps to remember that 999 times it doesn't happen, right. and that maybe those 999 have some. Maybe we should be looking at those cases to sort of figure out why the one did fight, rather than forget they exist. Mm-hmm. Let's hit one more myth about a way towards uh, towards universal peace, which is that if you end poverty. You will mm-hmm. end war. You've seen a lot of poverty out there and you've studied a lot of wars out there. What do you think? Yeah. And I, this is also where some of my own research comes into play, where I was surprised to find that when nations experience like a sudden plunge in their wealth and income because of say, uh, you know, they, they export one commodity and the price plummets on world markets or, or, or there's some adverse, the ter- terrible, like drop in rainfall and people don't have as much to eat. Um, they're not more likely to start wars. Civil wars, social unrest, international wars. Um, to the extent there's an association with violence, it can make ongoing wars a little longer, maybe because people are cheaper to hire. Uh, it's destabilizing, but it doesn't make wars more likely to break out. And this kind of makes sense in what we've been talking about, which is to say that war is always costly. You're rich, it's costly. You're poor, it's costly. If you're poor... You're on the edge of survival. It's not clear that like maybe like war is even more dire because it can push you over into, you know, disrupting your society. People die. So there's always this incentive for peace and for a bargain. 
that's ever present, regardless of your wealth level. And, uh, and so, so there might be like subtle relationships, but as to first order, like, this is just not, this is not how to think about war. We want to end on a, on a positive note here. And I think the most positive note is that from all of this, that there are actually some practical tips for how everybody from no kidding mediators and negotiators to citizens and representative democracies can think about ways of keeping conflict from from getting to all out war. And yeah. what what amazes me is your solutions here are not the grand sweeping one size fits all kind of things that we too often see out there in the public discourse, but instead some some general principles that fall under the heading perhaps of moderation and humility, things like, you know, it's, it's best to operate at the margins in many cases, mm -hmm. or it's a good idea to just experiment and take some time doing things, some of which you know won't work out, yep. let them fail, and then learn from them. Um, these are not the kinds of things that often get people elected, which yeah. is I want to go out there and fail so that I can learn from those failures. And yet, when you think about them in the context of your own life, they make sense. They make sense mm -hmm. to make some kind of progress through trial and error and allowing yourself to be comfortable mm -hmm. with that. Uh, talk through these, these solutions in a general sense to say, you know, they won't have a breakthrough. We're not going to stop war next year mm -hmm. because we're a little bit more humble and because we're a little bit more willing to fail in some of yep. these attempts operating at the margins, but talk through what advantage they do give us and why that may be the best we can do in this environment. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a very, very, I don't know, self-serving thing to say as a microeconomist, which is what my training was, which is work on the margins. And yeah, but yeah. you know what I point you know, like my inspirations for this were, you know, as I talk about in the book, Karl Popper, who's a philosopher of science, and who asked like how progress gets made and it gets made in small steps through trial and error, uh, through a slow process of, of discovery with lots of failure. Uh, and, um, and that was the message from like urban planners, like Jane Jacobs and, and, and sort of anarchist political scientists like James Scott. And so all through every, everybody who's, I think ever sort of really looked at how humans make progress, whether it's in peace or development or cities or anything, uh, found that actually the huge leaps forward um, happen, but they're accompanied as often by huge leaps backwards. And and so maybe huge leaps were the problem. And and the more patient um, piecemeal engineering, which is Karl Popper's term, is, is 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 like a philosophy for 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 basically improving your society at every level. And and so I I turn that I sort of apply these principles to conflict and and i think it, it's certainly more applicable to making a difference in your city or in your country i mean how we be how we how we're how we operate as piecemeal engineers on an international level with like great power conflict is a little bit thornier right um but but i think little little steps, little tweaks to our institutions, trying to figure out, trying to get sanctions regimes better, trying to make rules and enforcement a little bit more predictable, trying to tweak the incentives for more, you know, checked power in other countries. 
probably the way forward. And that, you know, I did that because you know, a lot of books sort of will end and say, oh, you know, now that you, here's, you know, either they end on this, like, oh, we're marching towards progress in a better world and mm -hmm. everyone should, you know, be happy. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to end on that note. I wanted to be optimistic, but in a pragmatic way. And I also didn't want to sort of say, okay, now that you believe this, here's our policy, here's our 10 point policy plan for, yeah. for, for world peace, because I don't think there is a 10 point plan. I was like, well, actually I can't do that because everybody has to find their own way through this process. So that's why I decided to write this chapter that, um, that some will, I, you know, I hope some will find more satisfying than dissatisfying. And, and it leaves us in a place that is both realistic and optimistic, which is not always an overlap that, that we can find. Yeah. Well, you know, most people don't get to the second half of the book and most people don't get to the chapter, the final chapter of a book ever. Right. And, <laughs> and so I felt like if, if you've, if you've, if you've carried, if you've come along for the journey this far, then I can, I can like give you something a little bit more nuanced. Uh, and, and I'm confident you're, you know, the reader will handle it. So. It would be a fascinating experiment, Chris, to take, uh, you know, so many books and just simply take the final chapter and make it the first chapter and see how, yeah. how different people take lessons away from them. Well, it is time for our tradition in Chatter to, to reach into our Chatter box and pull out a random question for you to answer. Usually something a, a, little, bit, a little bit more personal, sometimes mm -hmm. a little bit more wider perspective. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era who we could really use right now. Huh. Well, okay. I'm going to pick someone I was a mentor to me who sadly passed away about a month, about a month or two ago. Oh, uh, a guy named Amos Sawyer who no one will have ever heard about, but I wrote about in the book because I think he, I wish we'd listened to him more. He was, um, an activist and a political scientist in Liberia. So he's a Liberian uh, throughout the seventies and eighties, who was just this sort of very soft spoken, deeply principled man who had the fortune or misfortune when Charles Taylor, this warlord invaded Liberia to, you know, go to, um, you know, flee to another West African country where he and other political exiles met, uh, and he had the misfortune or, or, or fortune to be nominated to be acting president of Liberia for the next mm -hmm. four years. And a Nigerian, uh, feels wrong to call it a peacekeeping force, but a Nigerian force sort of helped this, this, this Amos and, and Liberians preserve control of the capital while Charles Taylor controlled the whole country. So he had this real world experience of politics. And then he retired afterwards. He sort of, after Charles Taylor won, he went into he went back to study and he went to write books about how to create peace in general. He, he wrote a book about how to do it in Liberia, but I think it, to me it's everything. And he, more than anybody else, if there's one meta reason that there is conflict in the world, it's because of centralized power. Mm -hmm. Not just because it creates unchecked leaders, but because it creates, uh, because we're subject to their ideologies, we're subject to their misperceptions, it magnifies uncertainty, it magnifies commitment problems. Like the biggest problem in human society for all of history, peace, development, everything is over-centralized power in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and I only understand that because of Sawyer. And he was a very patient and eloquent advocate for that, who never really got a recognition or a big audience beyond his place where he's revered. He's revered in Liberia. 
uh, rightly so. And uh, so, so somebody like that, I mean, we had that in, you know, we had James Madison in the United States, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we've, we have these figures, these Madisonian and Sawyer like figures, uh, uh, but they are few. And so, so anyway, if that's like the central insight of the whole book, uh, then in terms of what, why we fight in the path to peace, then I think, you know, I owe it to him. Well, in addition to linking to why we fight in the show notes, uh, we are going to link to the work of Amos Sawyer as well to, um, to respect your nomination there. Chris, it has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot here and the insights in why we fight are worth a, a wide audience. Thank you for sharing the, the highlights with us. No, thank you for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.